Ewa, it's Zach Langley Chichi. I'm so popular and I have a guest I'm so excited to have on tonight. Who are you? I'm Adam Tedesco. Hi Adam Tedesco, what are you doing? What am I doing? Uh, I'm still waking up a little bit. Uh, you know, I'm thinking about what we're going to be talking about. Uh, thinking about abjection. Yeah, nothing better to start your day with than uh, contemplating abjection in the morning. Yeah, I love the smell of abjection in the morning. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like black coffee. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, yeah, and uh, I have to ask you, why do you follow me? Hmm. That's a really good question. Well, I mean, you're you're a great follower. Uh, and Thank you. Somehow figured out that we have, you know, very, we have uh, similar aesthetics and I think a, uh, a shared set of cultural reference points and, uh, you know, close enough views on the world that, uh, you know, uh, that it seems to make, you know, my uh, online world more enjoyable to be able to have my feed. Thank you very much. I imagine that it might have been after I brought Jack on to talk about Mishima back in like November. And that's kind of when I was finally able to reform my Twitter from just merely tweeting about my day and pop singers and actually talk about like the books and the movies I <laughs> participate in and have no outlet for. But basically the community that Jack introduced to me and kind of, uh, brought to me as well has been the biggest blessing of my young life because I it, it's honestly the first time even beyond undergraduate that I've been able to find people who understand and see movies and literature like I do and I uh, am always so thrilled to see what you're watching and reading and get to just participate with it on the timeline so thank you for your presence of course yeah likewise feelings more than mutual yeah i do i it was i i feel like i was actually following you for a while before i realized that you had had jack on but i was wow um and i had just read a mishima book too when i read when i saw that uh, I don't know if it was when he posted like other things he had been on or somewhere along the lines. And then yeah, somewhere I, along the lines. Yeah, I had been following you for a, a little while before I was even like super familiar with the with the podcast. Um, yeah. Well, thank you for listening and <laughs> thank you for following me. It really is a, a blessing. And I mean, one of the best parts about it is that it introduced me to your poetry as well. You so lovingly paid the shipping and sent me copies of two of your chapbooks all the way to Japan, and I just ate up misrule in uh, one sitting, and then kept it on my coffee table and then brought it with me on the train and reread it several times in two weeks. And for anyone who's not familiar, it is just a masterful and disturbing and extremely poignant kind of reflection on a lot of destruction, I feel like, and it's a, a book of poetry that really reinvigorated my my interest in the medium. Oh, geez, thanks so much, Zach. That's, that's a really uh, affirming thing to hear. Um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's uh, 
you know, I'm not always great at taking compliments, but that, that's, thank you so much. That's really nice. No, me neither. Whenever anyone says anything nice about the podcast, I just like freeze. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it, it does feel very good. And uh, yeah, it's, I'm glad that you're able to see <laughs> the destructive element to it. Um, because, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, I feel like it's easy sometimes for people to be, I feel like you have uh, maybe, be maybe not having been in and around poetry right at the time of reading it you have a more privileged or a better window into it than what the mm -hmm. general readership for it was because i think a lot of those people were looking at it perhaps in terms of like technique or beauty or reference or and right. I, I always feel like oh no one's gonna get anything i'm saying but that's okay <laughs> Yeah, that's the hardest part about writing is because it, the relationship that you have with what you put on the page is just you and your pen or your keyboard, and there's nothing between you and then putting it onto that uh, page and just the act of trying to get what you want out in a way that can be understood is very frightening. And then there's the additional layer of having to publish it, find a market for it, find people who are reading to pay for it and print it and the whole process can kind of abstract a lot of the things I love about poetry. And I really like Dunn. I have revisited some Shelley recently. I, I read a Prometheus Unbound. And the qualities I liked most about that kind of poetry was the ability for it to represent the sublime and show like these horrifying extreme moments of life in a way that doesn't always have to be so explicit and i found that exact quality in your writing as well wow that's about as great a compliment as i can receive on my work thank <laughs> you so much thank you <laughs> sorry to shower yeah. you with compliments i did this with jesse uh, lanza when she was on the show too she was like oh thank you i'm like i just can't stop complimenting. no it's very very nice to receive i appreciate it um uh, yeah I, I the the act the act of doing it is why i do it you know mm -hmm. it's a, a kind of uh that's the you know the one thing that i um never lose faith in around art is just the act of production of art and like uh, yeah you know that the idea that it's can be a kind of communication with um some type of higher power and serve to be in service of a higher power you know and um yeah there's lots of times where you know all different where i i feel <laughs> what we'll, you know we'll talk about it i'm sure but i feel like an abjection i feel abjection around you know community cultural communities you know cultural production mm -hmm. the communities of cultural production uh and uh definitely feel that like hard othering uh, around uh, some of those things. But the one thing I never lose faith in or one thing that like I'm never um, turned off or turned away from is like the actual process. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I, I brought you on the show today because you were familiar with um, an essay on abjection powers of horror by julia kristeva and 
I was introduced to this book from One Tricks Point Never, who referenced that it was kind of a seminal book in the creation of uh, his Garden of Delete album. And I'd been meaning to read more psychoanalysis. I picked this up and charged through it in like two weeks of uh, battled reading. It's very dense. Every sentence has about 700 particles going on in it. But uh, going back through it over and over again, it has really introduced to me a new way of thinking about the conditions around me and a lot of the emotion I hold for the state of the world. So with the abjection kind of playing a little bit into your approach to your poetry and uh, just our shared taste in media, I was hoping we can talk today about abjection and also one of its uh, most exciting depictions and uh, the, the best experience of abjection, which is, I think, in cinema. Oh, without it, yeah, that I'd love to talk about that. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so we're going to just do it. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. I uh, I went on to Pleasure Helmet, hosted by my, my good friend Donna, and she uh, she and I had a really great discussion about objection and uh, the piano teacher as well. And I I guess that what really drove me to this concept is that I do feel a lot of um, extremity in my emotions, particularly like in how I relate to men or like in desire. And I found that this book and the way of thinking about abjection and understanding what it is really kind of gave me a new approach to seeing the way I <laughs> exist in the world. So I'm kind of wondering if you can describe what abjection is to someone who doesn't know what it might be already. Oh, uh, so you, you want me to paraphrase like, uh, you know, yeah, exactly. Two, uh, 200, got to do it. 200 poetic philosophical essay into yeah exactly can you give it to me in one sentence (laughs) uh well i think you know the best you know uh metaphor is uh the skin on the surface of milk which christopher you know talks about yeah in in detail but like this idea of uh you know a, a a thing that seems familiar but then uh, is is not what you is not <clears throat> the thing you thought it would be. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. And that's a clumsy way of saying it. And it, it more has to do with the borders of yourself and your desire and your relationship with the outside world and those the boundary of the self getting blurred there. And right. um, like an, uh, it creates a sensation that's like the opposite of sublime yes exactly it's like um the sensation is that of the line that kind of divides your ego from the other that line kind of being obscured or uh, being destroyed or cast away so that your sense of self and your sense of the rest of the universe is uh, sort of inflated and confused with one another mm-hmm. yeah um yeah, something I've experienced often. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, the one of the, the ways that she, Kristeva, primarily characterizes that kind of sensation is, like, in the feeling of disgust. And she compares it a lot to shitting and vomiting and, like, pissing and ejaculating and uh, bleeding. And it's because that 
act and like seeing the physical matter like produced from your body's uh, kind of this show of your self and your ability to exist and be separate from others. It's showing sort of like the vulnerability in that. Yeah, it's proof of mortality, um, like proof of humanness or proof of mortality as well. Um, and also, exactly you know, right. as far as like, you know, the bodily fluids and those, it's like also you're seeing like what should be inside, outside, right? So that's like uh, a discrete blurring of that border. And I think that's part of the effect of that, um, you know. There's also, you know, there's the, I, I'm trying to remember how much she goes into the fact that there's like a evolutionary like strata for that, you know, to just health, you know, that yeah. we should, we have to have feel this thing because it keeps us from, it keeps us from eating our own shit or, you know, uh, or it makes us be scared when we bleed and, you know, these things that we need. But I feel like, uh, the main point of her essay and she's talking about is, you know, the product of the ego that arises on top of this, you know, uh, these evolutionary uh, impulses, you know, that arise from like the reptilian substrata. Yeah. And she has a, a lot of uh, wonderful, very broad uh, approaches to understanding this entire issue and i mean she goes through everything from religion to like minor cultural institutions to language and the uh, linguistic approach especially fascinated me when i was reading it because she kind of writes about how the act of speaking and dividing yourself from the other is like a constant like flirtation with abjection and having to speak and to uh, define yourself and like cast off objection in every sentence is one of the primarily like the primary forces in how we address each other. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, you know, um, I feel like I have a, you know, being someone who produces art with words, you know, I have a special, somewhat special relationship with that and that that facet of objection. Yeah, but certainly like the constant division of yourself from the outside world and the constant kind of reasserting of your, your physical boundaries through language. Uh, yeah, it, it, that's, you know, something I try to work against, I think, to, or that artists try to work against in poetry. And that, that's what produces, you know, I think transgressive work, but... Uh, yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. Um, because having to figure out a way to speak in a way that isn't abject or, you know, in learning how to define yourself and to sort of like strafe around these experiences where you might be confusing yourself with the other and, and trying to uh, constantly maintain your individuality I think it's it's very stressful for the human experience and sort of reading through that in her book made me really cognizant of the way that I, I present myself and I speak. And I think it's a it's very topical to the the podcast as art, which is merely several people or two people or however many have you 
uh, just on a recorded phone call, like babbling into the abyss. And I feel like the podcast is a really excellent site for uh, dealing with objection, honestly. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that, but it certainly is. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like the idea of what we're doing right now, I feel kind of almost embryonic, uh, you know, just like floating in an abyss. Yes without a doubt. Well, exactly, because I mean, we're both currently divided by a extreme time difference. It's uh, nearing 1 a.m. here, and it's uh, your day's just starting. Like, it's pitch black outside, and uh, we don't have our cameras on, so we're just two voices, like, floating in the abyss, uh, combating a concept together. <laughs> Which, you know, is a good encapsulation of humanity. Certainly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Well, and she goes into talking about um, a lot of the uh, literature and art that she finds uh, deals well with this concept. And she was she's especially fond of Celine and, and basically um, suggests that literature and art and experiencing like the object and dealing with it through art is uh, one of the best ways of like processing it and turning it into a, a more rewarding and productive if if i could say productive like sensation yeah yeah it, you know i have to admit i'm not super familiar with Celine's work but i i i'm most familiar with Celine through chris yeah uh, me too i haven't read anything from him yet it's yeah. been like on my list now but i thought it, she also talked about how like his uh like uh sort of like anti-semitic and like political um writings as well were also like this great show of the of abjection and and the way he desperately like toiled to divide himself from another and um that sort of like artistic approach to discussing the other is is something that also kind of works in this realm of abjection yeah that is perhaps you know like so out the realm of are and just in life in general and like navigating the world perhaps the facet of this that i'm most uh interested or that i feel i'm confronted with the most uh, mm-hmm. in the past several years as far as um you know be being abject as far you know being abject in your person as far as uh who you are and how you identify yourself and being so othered from everything around you um you know i'm trying to think there's a podcaster i saw do a video justin murphy do you know who that is oh yeah yeah he had a used to be on a girls talk yes i guess it was girls chat then yes yeah yeah yeah. he at one point i saw this is i think a couple years ago i had a short video about Abjection, and this was around the time I first read uh, this essay, and I was like, "Oh, here's something about objection." And he was saying, "You know, uh, the importance if, if if you want to be a person who does something of import, you know, or does something, you know, like has creates some kind of like serious ideas, or you know, like is able to have like some kind of." unique or novel perspective on the world or create art you know that you should be 
invested in being abject in abjecting mm-hmm. yourself and um, being you know of the rest of the world looking at you as abject and you know all the things that come with that <laughs> and that you should not be scared of that 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 should be something you, you learn to welcome right because uh, even though she says that you know abjection and, and sublimity are kind of uh opposite forces like the way that you feel them and approach them are both very similar and i think that there's a lot of satisfaction to be gained from being abject and i mean i find that most of my approach to living uh, without me ever having known it is is kind of about like embracing like the sensation of uh the border between yourself and the rest of the world kind of wavering and i mean from doing drag where you're uh, putting your uh, whole identity into this sort of like enormous costume that people can kind of engage with and like see a lot of like cracks in the facade or like just being a foreigner <laughs> in a country where I'm like an absolute ethnic minority. It's like I get to experience that a lot and I uh, I find it to be really pleasurable. Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely the kind of person that's always taken pleasure in both pleasure and kind of a you know some kind of uh, masochism i've enjoyed uh, a masochistic joy you know in being the outsider and being the other and it's like a role i've always inhabited um so it's like a, just it, it's come naturally to me but um in most things that i do and uh i would you know I think, you know, the whole, you know, <clears throat> you know, Twitter and, you know, every, you know, everyone having, um, you know, anonymous and alt accounts, like, is a perfect example of, like, people grappling with this, right? And trying to, like, redefine their relationship or seeing where, like, these borders of themselves are and how much they can push against uh, the rest of the world, if that makes sense. No, Absolutely. I mean, this current contemporary moment, I think, is one that is perhaps more abject than any other time because we're, you know, putting our egos and identities into social media. And I mean, it's an obvious comment, but it's uh, there's never been a, a moment in history, I think, where our identities aren't like as much as a uh, public pageant as they have turned into recently. So I think that everybody is kind of... Uh, uh, subjected to this experience to some degree of being abject and being other and having to put your persona into this, uh, you know, online piece of art, even if you're doing it in an artless way, like Twitter or Instagram or anything else, and uh, not being properly equipped to dealing with that and experiencing and processing the emotion is kind of a, a recipe for horror in a lot of people, I think. Oh, without a doubt, uh, you know, I, I, you and I had previously talked about the fact that I had, you know, I recently like deleted uh, all my the accounts under my name, and I was, um, you know, the account that we had, my account that we had met through, you know, was an alt, and I'm trying to kind of like make that my main now, and kind of, you know, I'm not invested in anonymity. Um, I understand why some people, you know, need that depending upon their job or what have you. But, you know, for me, it's mm-hmm. it just, I, I, the main thing is, you know, my political 
uh, inclinations or and sense of humor and all these things don't necessarily you know they definitely rub up against <clears throat> the main the communities that I was engaging with previously on Twitter which were like the literary and academic right. communities and uh, which are like you know ground zero for like for wokeness and uh, yeah but you know there's this I have the it's very low stakes for me. However, I feel emotionally about it. The, the reality is it's, it's very low stakes. So I have no investment in anonymity, but the process of, of, of navigating that and saying, okay, yeah, like I'm gonna. Okay, where were we? Sorry. No worries. Yeah, we were uh, talking about uh, objection and. Oh, and uh, you're, uh, yeah, you're shedding your uh, nominity. Yeah, yeah. And in the process of, uh, you know, like navigating that has definitely been, um, you know, a process of <laughs> engaging with objection. Um, you know, at, at first, you know, the alt account was just something I set up just to tell like stupid jokes, like ball jokes, right. ball and dick jokes. <laughs> and then, um, as it started to be like, oh, actually like this is like something I, you know, the people that I've befriended here and, uh, the, the communities I'm part of here, I feel much more at home with than like the literary community or <laughs> these, you know, uh, the academic circles and, uh, Things where like for a long time now I've not wanted to participate in or really speak in or really listen to because yeah. it created a huge amount of uh, you know uh, cognitive dissonance and, and abjection. So yeah, well, there's no doubt that the you know woke circles of academia and you know literary publishing and whatever whatever else have you. Uh, are complete failures at dealing with abjection. And Chris Deva talks a little bit about something called like the holy brat at the beginning of the book, which is uh, a child yes. who has been too shielded and has uh, not done enough uh, processing with abjection. So they end up being this uh, creature full of uh, fetishes and really specific desires for um, brackets of safety and they end up being extremely like malformed and incapable of uh, dealing or desiring anything except kind of their uh, masochistic wills that they're, they want. And if you look at, I mean, when I got into my row with the YA novelists earlier, is all these people panicking about um, their course curriculums not representing what they want to see so i think that basically in any sort of like woke realm that you see on twitter or anywhere else these days it's like a just a very sad and grand picture of a failure to process objection oh uh 100 you know it's it's funny the the first kind of big disagreement or row i got in with the poetic and literary and academic circle was a post I made about just, I'm like, I, I'll paraphrase it, but I was like, can we just admit that most contemporary poetry is basically like YA literature? Yeah. 
<laughs> Merely a fact. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And oh, I mean, like, you know, you would have thought that I was, I posted a swastika or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was uh, pretty amazing the amount of uh, disdain that uh, brought out of people. Well, it's truly that of the holy brat. It's like, I. I think you're completely right that a lot of contemporary poetry, at least from my very limited exposure to it, is um, it's all very fashioned in like that stand-up poetry high school mode. Um, do you, do you know what I mean? Oh, I know exactly what you mean. Believe me, I, I'm very <laughs> well versed in exactly <laughs> what you mean. You know, um, yeah. I mean, you know, it's there's like the, you know, I think. I, and I've been called by some people in my life. I've been called racist because I because I've talked about the deteriorous acts of like basically like the encroachment of like slam into contemporary poetry. Oh um, yeah, and you know the way that that operates, the way that like slam works, and it's not that I think it, there's necessarily anything bad or wrong about it, but you know it's basically a contest where you know like the the middle the middle of the road always rules. That's the way like the scoring and everything works. So it's like you come out with the most kind of like milk toast, you know, like, you know, middle of the road thing, winning and getting, the, you know, being lauded, you know, and a lot of the people that have, uh, you know, kind of won at that game has been like, well, we did this. Now we can go and be, you know, uh, champions of the academic poetry world and brought, a lot of that mentality with them um right yeah and uh, there there is that that flattening effect that we talked about you know uh and it's not necessarily a, a problem that i have with you know any culture or anything being represented within that style but it's more like you know it's kind of like a video game like pick your player you can either be like the you know like the rape victim or the uh you know uh somebody disenfranchised like diaspora child exactly yes yes yeah um no i i know exactly what it is because i mean i have seen a lot of slam poetry in my life and it it really is just this establishment of a border and loud and uh very uh hand wavy uh intense loud speaking in which the speaker is honestly really just very desperately trying and acting to define themselves in a way that's just like erecting a wall and um i find it all to be very difficult to watch yeah i mean you know and when i see somebody doing that in performance art and they're in somebody doing it like you know you could say in a way like the the viennese actionists <laughs> were doing something you know like they were like standing in front of an audience, you know, gesticulating, doing something pretty wild too. Um, mm-hmm. And like, look, I'm not advocating for animal slaughter for our sake or, <laughs> or cruelty, but I'm just saying that like, you know, there's at least that was original. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, in, you know, slam and the, you know, consequential modes of poetry, it's like, uh, yeah, we're gonna, you know, I'm going to define myself and who I am by like picking one of these characters and just inhabiting this role. Yeah. It's a lot of acting. I mean, 
I, uh, I am literally thinking of one specific person who I obviously won't name or allude to, but I can see the performance really clearly in my mind right now. And it was just somebody desperately trying to create an identity and then sort of put it on the audience. And it was like almost like a, a testimony of trying to prove that they are what they are. And I find that all of the poetry I have ever appreciated and, uh, you know, I, I listed um, Dunn earlier, but I, I also really like Christina Rossetti. I, I find that a lot of my favorite poetry is all stuff that is kind of like ripping and tearing at that wall instead of trying to put one up. Yeah, 100%. It, it's funny. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Amiri Baraka, um, but, you know, he was considered by some people kind of problematic because he had some claims of anti-Semitism leveled at him. But, uh, you know, he was somebody, a, a big influence on me. I love his work. And at, at one t- mm-hmm. at one time, uh, he was asked about slam poetry and he said, oh, no, it's like low art. And it's basically like, he's like, it's in between, like, I think he uh, compared it to carnival barking. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And then the funny thing is, they had him on on the HBO Deaf Poetry Slam, and then all of a sudden he's like, "No, slam poetry is great." (laughs) (laughs) Oh God! Yeah, yeah, rough. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I just um. I think the world would be in a better condition if, you know, even outside of like slam poetry or like the world of poetry, if all art was less concerned with establishing ego and, and more concerned with kind of teasing it and prodding it and, and maybe trying to break it down a little bit and experiencing the object. But that holy brat fear persists in so much culture that I think it's very difficult for anyone to get to that level. 100%. Yeah, and the, the Holy Brad is a, a great way to talk about modern culture. And it, it's, you know, it's a great lens for that. Like I said, you know, the, the one positive about it is uh, anyone, you know, it does take a certain, it does take more balls now to do something real and do something, you know, unique and to like uh, push against those boundaries so when you see someone doing it it's easier to see take you into a world never dealt with in a major motion picture. I have existed from the morning of the world and I shall exist until the last star falls from the night. Although I have taken the form of Caius Caligula, I am all men as I am no man, and therefore I am...
one of the things that I kind of gleaned from reading about abjection is that it's actually one of my favorite qualities in filmmaking. And I hadn't realized it before reading Gristeva that it was actually a quality that I was like actively seeking out in one of like the unifying um, aesthetic appeals to me <laughs> in movies. And I went back through like all of my, uh, you know, top favorites, like Carrie and Battle Royale and East Palace, West Palace and Dancer in the Dark. And all of the movies are at least tangentially addressing like the abject and, and showing like these uh, straying lines. And so as I've been reforming my podcast and kind of creating a canon of uh, apocalyptic cinema of the I'm So Popular universe, I thought that together we could go through four not at all associated movies that we've both seen um, that I believe are really great representations of abjection. That sounds great. Yeah. And uh, the first of these is uh, Paul Schrader's Hardcore. Uh, how did you see this movie? Like, what is your experience with it? Oh, uh, I went to a false trade of phase. I read his, I was taking a uh, film class and I read his uh, uh, Transcendental Style in Cinema or Transcendental Style in Film, Ozu, Dreyer, Brisson. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, then, I, you know, I had known about taxi driver and he's involved in his writing but i wasn't that familiar with his directorial work and i just went through a, a terror where i watched all of them um you you know uh pirated them <laughs> but uh yeah yeah that's exactly how i watched him too because uh i just um i got exposed to him i think from mishima and i initially had felt a lot of hesitation towards it because i was so shocked that a Westerner would even try depicting Mishima. I was very theatrical about it, but then it was mm-hmm. better than I think any Japanese filmmaker in recent memory was capable of doing. And uh, from there, I just went on a binge and like watched everything I could. And uh, I just find that his depiction of the erotic universe is so up my alley. And he is one of cinema's few great perverts. And it makes for a uh, boundless career of great disturbing art. And I think hardcore is uh, one of his best. Yeah, without a doubt. Uh, hardcore, you know, <laughs> hardcore brings to, to uh, first, I have this weird, um, I have a weird connection, not connection with the film itself, but like association because, uh, you know, Schrader himself is Calvinist. And mm-hmm. so, and then this film, in the film, it's about a Calvinist father, right? Whose daughter gets kind of taken into uh, the underworld of porn and stuff. And I, uh, I had dated a woman uh, at one point who like went to uh, Calvin College and was a sex worker. Oh my and, God. Yeah. 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 And, but I mean, this was, you know, after the fact, um, you know, me dating her, but mm-hmm. after, you know, and, but I had seen hardcore maybe a couple of years before I started dating her. And there was something, is it, I don't know, is it wrong to say that I found that 
somehow that made it like the relationship more erotic or like somehow like that that connection with the film and like the no it totally would the abject quality of it uh (laughs) the abject quality of it made it like a a huge turn on um yeah because i mean like half the tension of hardcore is less about um george c scott's character it's less about him actually you know finding his daughter and saving her even though that's like the the main plot device but a lot of it is actually like the tension with the the sex workers and when he is uh you know in california and in la and going through all of these like dingy dirty like sex clubs and meeting all these women and you know faking his uh, own pornographic film to uh in order to find her, but all of the tension in the movie is about like those uh, experiences he has with like the sex workers and with these uh, these people and his relationship with them and if he is turned on or if he's disgusted is like a constant drama of the film. Oh yeah, yeah. I like the. Uh... I don't know if temptation is the right word, but like the 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 twin sensations of uh, repulsion and and lust, right? <laughs> Which is exactly, you know, yeah. Uh, it, it's it, that constant tension is there throughout the movie, and that that's what makes it work 100%. There's been other movies about just a father saving a, a daughter, and it doesn't have that same tension. I think that the the religious element. And by it, it, that's what makes it, this film so powerful. But also, I just want to say that that scene uh, where Jersey Scott is like, he's got like the big open collared shirt and he's like playing the sleazy like porn director uh, in order to like set up this, the sting kind of to try to find his daughter is like I, one of my, my favorite things Jersey Scott's done better than Strange Love or anything else. I love that. I love him like that. Oh, yeah, because he has like three masks on over that character it's like the the first one is like him outside of his religious element and then the second one is like him pretending to be this uh pornographic uh filmmaker and uh it's all performed with like this just beautiful masterful touch that makes like the scene so tense and when it like finally breaks out into bloody violence at the end it's like orgasmic yeah yes it is um yeah yeah i don't i, I don't know if it's my favorite Schrader film, but it's definitely up there. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if it is mine. I think Mishima probably is my number one from him at the end of the day. But uh, And I, I saw that before Hardcore, but when I came back and, and went through this one, I it gave me that really specific like Schrader feeling in my gut. that, And it did mm-hmm. so more strongly than some of his others, so it's definitely up there for me too. Yeah. I also the the there's a certain feeling that I get from this movie that you know speaks to my relationship with abjection you know having at one point um been you know spent a lot of my life like uh, a druggy mess kind of and you know sex being tied up in that drug use mm-hmm. and then in the process of getting sober like having to take like you know, you have to do like this inventory and go back and like go through and cat and sit down and actually catalog like all the sex and all the things. <laughs> and it's like that process of that. I definitely felt like George C. Scott 
Like, yeah, yeah. In, the, in this movie, that was a, that was a, a you know n- not in a puritanical or Calvinist or whatever way, but definitely uh, not in a religious way at all. But definitely like you know in like facing the sheer direction of like all these ways I've you know pushed my own boundaries and all these things I've done. It's like holy shit. Uh, I did that, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> and like kind of the the, the denial, the out of bodyness to it, like the disembodiment right. through which I moved through a large chunk of my life reminds me of like that the somewhat disembodiment of George C. Scott in this movie. If that makes sense. No, I know exactly what you mean, and you know, even though I. Uh... Um, my problems are merely ones I've invented, you know, for myself. And I, I, I find that a lot of my own recollections of sexuality, like I feel like the same tension around that, that I think exists in hardcore. And it's because the movie is like really primordial and aware of like these creepy ancient sexual drives that exist in all people. And having to see that and recognize that in yourself and either defeat it or, you know, just embrace it is what's scaring the shit out of George C. Scott. And whenever I think about like my debaucherous behavior um, in terms of sex and like asking, like, did I do that? It's like the exact same kind of horror that I think he's going through talking to all of these strippers and hookers and everything else. Yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah, and I think it's a it's a good entrance into the next movie we're going to talk about, which is um, Ulrich Siddle's uh, 2012. Uh, it's the, the first entrance into his uh, trilogy of Paradise movies. Uh, this one is Love. There are two others. I think one is Faith and the other is uh, something else. I've only seen this one, but the film really appealed to me um, because John Waters had recommended it as one of his favorite movies from 2012. And he said that it's like the most apocalyptic, disgusting, and uh, unfortunate portrayal of human sexuality that he had seen in recent memory. So of course, I was immediately turned on, had to watch it, and it did not disappoint. In the same way that hardcore is this movie just wrought with tension about the abject sexuality. Uh, if that movie is tense with it, then this one just is uh, a razor wire just trying to sculpt you the whole film. Oh, yeah. Um, that's, I think, Waters, uh, you know, comments on the film are 100% accurate. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Russell Banks, the author Russell Banks is, uh, he wrote yeah. uh, the book, that, the movie, The Sweet Hereafter, and I think Affliction, too, were based on, uh, which is Paul Schreier, Affliction. But uh, <clears throat> he had a book, The Rule of the Bone, which is kind of a, you know, about a young man finding his identity and chasing his father down in Jamaica. And uh, there's a character in that that I remember when I read it, I was kind of like horrified. Uh, there is a, uh, his father's girlfriend is a woman who kind of is like a pimp and sets up like these older, you know, American women with, you know, like young Jamaican bucks, you know? And right. uh, I remember being like, I remember failing objection reading that and just being like horrified. It was a, a small sliver of that book. 
but this film kind of like takes that idea and it just blows it up into like two hours and it's just like yeah. uh, some making butter in my gut the whole time uh it's absolutely horrifying to watch yeah the movie follows um a uh german tourist who uh, goes to the beaches of kenya um on basically a sex tourism escapade and it shows her um very earnest desire for a specific kind of love in these really frightening shades as she just goes through man after man and uh it never leaves like a, a moral point like it never lays a heavy hand on you to condemn her or anyone else um but the entire plot line of the movie and just watching it unfold in these very slow moving like glacial shots just leads to this uh really deep existential disturbance in, in watching the movie oh yeah um uh... Yeah, it's it's nightmare. It's nightmarish in a way that few other things I've seen are um, in a very unique way. Uh, first yeah, of all, absolutely. you know, I mean, a lot of that is kind of like, you know, whatever gendered expectations or whatever. Uh, and then, you know, like this reality of, about desire. And then there's also, you know, the racial... <laughs> the racial layer to it it's just like it's pushing against every taboo and it's just like uh grotesque absolutely you know uh grotesque yeah but like there's the (laughs) one the one scene uh where is it it's like a faux kind of like batch like it's like a female stag party oh yeah oh my god yeah, and they all take their turns kind of like jerking off the guy or like playing around with him. And one yeah. of the, the constant like returns of the movie is that it keeps showing the uh, protagonist is that she keeps getting most of what she wants, but not all of it. So she immediately rejects it and throws it out and then like directs her partner to behave in the way that she wants. And so it amounts in that almost a climactic scene of like the the female stag party where it's not just like one woman trying to like create the image that she desires but crafting like it's like several women like all greedily like crafting and like grabbing at this man yeah yeah seeing who can get who looks just so depressed the whole oh yeah 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 it's it's pretty brutal um you know that said, you know, we're, I'm very used to seeing women in that role, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, but I think there's something to be said about, you know, human nature, and, but that's all I'm discussing. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> Those are the gendered roles there. But, uh, <clears throat> yeah, and I'm trying to remember, there's the one part where she was trying to, it, yeah, it, it begins where she's just like, no, touch my tits like this, soft, touch the, t-, you know, and she's trying to teach the guy like the right way to touch her tits. And then yeah. by, the, by the end, it's just like, okay, eat, eat my pussy. And he's like, no, and she's like, then get out, bye. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah, cause she finally like, brings back like this uh, uh, bartender that she had been like 
teasing and making fun of earlier with her like other like overweight German hag friend and then when she finally like brings him back to the room and like instructs him to take a shower and do this and this and this and he makes one of the first like rejections of the movie it's this just terrible moment in this long shot where you see like the fury and disgust like sink into her face it's so upsetting yeah it's like you see her turn fully from someone who's actually like you know thinking she's going to find like this relationship type experience just to turning into a sexual consumer you know like in all the layers in, in all the layers in between being stripped away yeah, that's a beautiful way of putting it because uh, I think there is like a, a really, uh, you know, sort of capitalistly like a focused edge about this movie where we see a, like a lot of the the way that everything gets like turned into a transaction. And um, it's a lot about how her identity and her desires are slowly like warped and shifted and refocused until they've been abstracted into this destructive final point at the end of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Which is from what I'm familiar with, with uh, Seidel's work seems to be like his MO. Uh, the, the, the other one I've seen by him is import export. And mm-hmm. it, uh, it has kind of a similar, uh, similar thing happens in it, but it's again about sex trade and everything, uh, loosely. Yeah, and he's done yeah. other movies in Africa as well, like done like some like faux documentaries, like Safari and stuff, which I I haven't seen, but uh, he's very interested in the way that Europeans uh, look at African men specifically, and I find it just daring that anyone would even make a comment like i can't imagine like any filmmaker in the last five years like even daring to make a critique on the whole industry in such a way even though it seems like quite like kind of like an easy target just the way that he humanizes the protagonist and kind of even shows like a villainy in some of like the kenyan men in the movie is i think very arresting yeah yeah it's uh it's shocking the the way that he the the way that he deals with it and the way that he portrays it in some way like you know uh, like there's these scenes where all the um, men like the vendors are approaching her you know on the beats like almost like this mob of people trying to get her to buy trinkets or whatever she wants to spend money on and uh, you know it's almost like uh, there's elements of it that's almost like a you know, like a woman trying to like escape this horde of people. And it's kind of like, a, you know, a shocking depiction of, you know, one, like poverty and two, you know, the obvious, like, you know, white woman running away from a horde of black men. Yeah. <laughs> Which it's is an uh, image you'll know, never see again in filmmaking. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I mean, at the end of uh, Paradise Love, we have seen someone whose uh, identity has been so warped by her, like, kind of capitalist desires that she appears, like, almost no longer human and sort of sluggish. And I, I find it's kind of a good entrance into our third movie in this series, which is uh, Jonathan Glazer's 2013 Under the Skin. And um, 
I have no idea how you've seen this movie or, or what your experience is with it. So I'd love to hear that first. Uh, I don't think I saw this in the theater. I think I saw, you know, like, I think I watched it on pay-per-view or something uh, just because I was a, a fan of Jonathan Glazer. You know, I had like the, what the director's series or whatever that was, you know, the, the DVDs with the, uh, all the uh, video, like the Chris Cunningham and all, all those yeah. uh, d- directors and a uh, big fan of Jonathan Glazer. And um, yeah, this movie is, uh, you know, a horrifying, um, I, I think out of all these movies, probably the least horrifying or amount of like abjection or the, but uh a, a great depiction of like uh, female sexuality. Uh, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know, you know, like uh, the ultimate like female predator, um, <laughs> which again is a thing. Uh, as as opposed to, you know, it, it, to me it's like the kind of the logical, you know, the logical end to like girl boss. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, the logical end to girl bossism is uh, just being Scarlett Johansson uh, subduing men into the black pit for vaudeville consumption. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Oh my god, I I um had been kind of meaning on and off to watch it because I I had heard it was like an artistic horror movie back when I was in high school because it came out when I was I don't even know like uh like fifteen or sixteen or something, but I didn't end up watching until it until i noticed it was on a japanese netflix and there was a typhoon i was locked in my house and i had my storm shutters up i hadn't seen anyone like in two days and i watched this and it scared the fuck out of me it's one of two times watching a movie on my laptop that i've ever like tried to close the laptop or have pushed it away the other being inland empire and uh i was so shook and like taken aback by my viewing experience that I watched it again immediately after and then again like three weeks three weeks later that seems like the perfect scenario for viewing it like uh, like it's an immersive that seems like you know how to create like a a, a truly immersive uh experience like around that film (laughs) Um, oh yeah and I mean at first it's just a disconcerting like kind of I mean there's a lot of disgusting shots of human beings like in the first the quarter of the movie where you just like see people moving around a mall or you see people walking on the street and the way it's shot is very kind of gross and unsettling but not until does um Scarlett Johansson who basically plays like an an alien in human skin subduing men into a then uh, process them into meat, basically, is the plot of the movie. But when she gets her first victim and she brings that guy into the black pit and we finally see, like, what happens in that void room and Mm -hmm. uh, the man's... That fucked me up. I had not been so shocked by a movie in ages. Yeah, yeah, that... uh, That's, like, for me, definitely the high point of abjection in the film, but, you know, like, this kind of... uh, the processing of someone as me and just like the, the you know like i've always <laughs> someone <laughs> being someone who's always been drawn to like you know extremity you know i've always 
you know, I could list a hundred films I've seen where people are either dissolved in acid or <laughs> broken down into smaller pieces yeah. or whatever. And this is uh, definitely one of the, you know, better, even though not super graphic, but uh, like the coldness of it, the coldness, which I guess Glazer is the perfect director for the, the, the coldness of the process and everything and the alienness to it. Um, yeah, There's I mean new- that that's perfectly it because what is most disturbing in that scene is that um the seduced man is brought into the pit is kind of concerned and like vaguely unaware of what's going on like there's there's like some aphrodisiac in him or something that makes him somewhat more passive to the situation but then he just sees like this bloated other figure in the blackness with him and they reach out and and touch each other in this really earnest gesture that is immediately ripped into horror when you get one little snap in the silence and the man's body deflates and begins stretching about yeah oh yeah (laughs) i just uh, that scene will stick with me forever and i mean i think that in terms of abjection the the way that we we see it most in in this movie is that scarlett johansson's uh, alien figure is really desperate to kind of break down her border between herself and the rest of the human race. And she has nothing but these uh, extremely awkward encounters with people when she's trying to be earnest or she's succeeding only when she's uh, bringing men into fuck and leave in the blackness. Yeah. Um, which is not too unlike a lot of people. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I feel like her, honestly. I relate. I, you know, when I'm in, when I have my wig on and I have a full face of makeup on and like some unsuspecting straight man thinks that, you know, something exciting is going to happen, I definitely feel like I'm going to eat him and bring him into the black room. So (laughs) I get the feeling. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I think I've been on both sides of that dynamic for sure. Yeah. I mean, any sexually active person probably has, I think, where you kind of see that you're annihilating the other and, uh, just completely banishing them in your sex act. And then you've also probably felt like the same from someone else before too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, <laughs> learning to enjoy that feeling is, is a uh, important part of life. <laughs> it, has, it has been for me. <laughs> me too (laughs) but i mean it by the end of the movie when she kind of is uh desperate to elect herself as a human being and to uh be like an active member of the world and uh then she's immediately like sort of uh, put into a system of sexual violence yeah she's immediately almost raped in like the bothy where uh she she really thought she was going to be able to become like a normal girl and get to be herself and she's individuated herself and is now like a part of the human continuum and then here comes some lumberjack like just ready to get it on yeah there's um i don't know yeah that turn to me seemed like uh or sadian almost Mm -hmm. you know like uh you know virtue's punishment kind of um i don't know that there's any virtue involved but <clears throat> just the idea of yeah, things are not going to get any better at any point, and uh, nothing good's going to happen. 
Yeah, I mean, that is definitely the impression I took away the, the first time I watched the movie. But uh, going back to it and kind of seeing uh, when she does try to experience love and there's like that amazing Mika Levy score where it's really swelling and you can kind of get like the sensation. It, it almost makes it seem for a moment that life might be worth living before they uh, rip off her skin and she uh, burns to death in the snow. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, again, um, I, there's, I think the first time I watched it, like that sensation, I almost was a little disappointed, like that, like, why did they have to, you know, they could have just like had it like a constant, like downward emotional trajectory and they didn't have to mm -hmm. put, the, there's like the instill a little bit of hope and it was almost like trickery, which I don't think it's trickery. It's just, you know, that's the way you know art functions but yeah uh upon consequent viewings i i, I don't think it would have worked the same without that um and that's definitely one of the better parts of the end yeah i agree that there is like that sort of a melancholy moment and it's not totally dejected um another nice tie to Kristeva is that uh one thing Scarlett Johansson alien wants to do more than anything is like eat a little piece of cake and she immediately just throws it back up and uh Kristeva writes that it's kind of like um sublime and cathartic to be able to like eat and process and even though it's like horrifying to have to realize the fact that you are mere flesh that's constantly trying to die and you have to eat to live um that like the proof of, of feces and shitting is like kind of like this cathartic release. And um, she's so abject and so not human that she doesn't even get to eat or shit. Yes. Yes. Both the Kristeva, that part of uh, Powers of Horror and when I watched this, when I watched this movie reminded me of an episode of, um, intervention i don't know if you've ever seen that show i haven't um, you know usually it's like drug addicts or people with problems and then their family has an intervention oh wait is this like the old like a reality tv show yes where they, yes they, like, yes okay i i do i have seen this i yeah. used to watch it when i was high in college yes that's the perfect way to watch it uh and there was there was an episode <laughs> with a, a woman who had been uh presumably you know you know, she, uh, something, and it, there was sexual abuse that took place like using her mouth, I'm guessing, because um, the later manifestation in her life was that she would not, she could not swallow food. All her food she would chew and then she would always have a cup with her and spit back up. Mm -hmm. So like that was what that, both the movie and that Christina, uh part reminded me of constantly was like this idea of like, just going through with the initial pleasure part of it, but not being able to do the actual like human like processing of it. Absolutely. And if there's any movie that is all about the failures of human processing and its dire consequences on society, it's a movie you um, reminded me and finally got me to watch after years of waiting too. And it's um, 1979's Caligula, which uh, cannot be, defined by any certain one director because it went through such a hellish developmental process that it was in the hands of multiple people for a long time. Yes. Yeah. Um, I know Tinto Brass 
was involved and Guccione. But yes, I love this movie. Yeah, what's your relationship to this movie like? Uh, you know, I was, I think I watched this a long time ago after I first saw Clockwork Orange and I was like, oh, this Malcolm McDowell dude's really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but when I originally watched it, it was not the, uh, the same cut that you and I saw. It like the, the more hardcore, like penetrative sex had been cut out of it. Uh, and so like I had heard, you know, you know, you know, lots of things about the controversy surrounding it, you know, um, like people, my parents' age, they told me, oh, that was wild. There were protests up in the cinemas. And, and uh, when I watched it, like, it, I think it was like a VHS. Uh, I saw it on and I was like, huh. Yeah, that, I mean, it, it's cool. Like, I, I get, you know, I've always been into like, you know, ancient Roman stuff and everything. And Malcolm Dowell and Helen Mirren are great in it. And, you know, there's lots of cool mm-hmm. violence. Like, the, the Wall of Death is great. That was like, oh, yeah. I, don't, I don't see why it's so shocking. And then just recently, right before I had suggested it to you, I had found what, you know, the, I forget it, it's called the Imperial Cut or whatever, but it's like the full, like, as it appeared in this, as it first appeared in the cinema that created like the big furor around it, where there is actual, you know, you have these scenes of just uh, moral depravity and violence constantly being like intercut with like every variety of hardcore sex oh yeah yeah and it's uh you know i'd like to hear what your what you felt about it when you first watched it because i have a, a ton of feelings about it right well i have a, a fondness for um kind of like a ancient period pieces with lavish budgets and disastrous uh, productions because uh, I fell in love with the Elizabeth Taylor's Cleopatra when I was in high school. I watched it with like my mom like three times and uh, I uh, was immediately like aesthetically very in tune with Caligula because it is like this depiction of uh, the Roman emperor Caligula and it had a horrifying production behind it and a really defined aesthetic sensibility. So all the, uh, and it's really long as well, which I also love dearly. So every single piece going into it was already something that engaged me. But going through, and when you arrive at that scene when Caligula goes to visit his uh, some whoever is in power at that moment, it escapes me now. And you see like the complete Sadie and meltdown of society with all of this like gay torture and uh, extreme violence. It immediately uh, showed it to me, the movie like showed itself to me as like an abject masterpiece, uh, just in the way it tonally depicts this violence and sex, because none of the violence or sexuality is like um thrilling or pleasing it has like this dull and oppressive tone to it that i found really intriguing yeah it's like just it's like um it's like it's like pornographic wallpaper you know yes it's it's so omnipresent um you know you could have wallpaper of beautiful peacocks and it just looks like a pattern from afar and you don't really mm-hmm. recognize any of the details or you know the you know what's to be appreciated about 
the birds themselves. And it's the same thing with this. Like, you know, you have every kind of, just about every kind of sexuality that uh, <clears throat> people like look for in pornography, you know, from like, there's like, there's like the Bukaki, like all the guys, you know, there's, uh, you know, every kind of uh, man on man, man on woman, you know, group, everything. It, and it's all there, you know, all penetrative, all like there's some, you know, I don't know, there's extreme close ups, but you definitely see everything happening. And it's oh, like, it gets pretty fucking close to those dicks. Like it yeah. really gets up there. Yeah, 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 it does. Um, and it's just like, the the so for me like i'm far from like puritanical or have any sorts of like repulsion or anything around sex itself or sex acts you know quite the opposite but the the abject quality of this is the like you said the the like the sadian breakdown and the vicinity of this kind of hedonistic sex juxtaposed like right in the same like two feet from like a guy getting his dick cut off and fed to a dog, you know? Uh, and it's like, and then somebody's, you know, getting a, a blowjob like two feet away. And at the same time, it's like, oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Right. And I mean, um, for me, like the, the pinnacle and like the linchpin of this movie is, um, I mean, the whole film is kind of a depiction of, like, Caligula's rage and, like, his power-hungry evil or whatever, um, and his uh, decadent descent into the destruction of Rome. But it all explodes when he uh, is in power and uh, decides to turn this enormous, like, war vessel into a, uh, basically, oh, yeah. like, a whorehouse of the senator's wives— and yes. at first, it's this just gorgeous, impressive sequence where you see all these angles of the boat, like all of these hundreds of like uh, beautifully costumed extras just perfectly choreographed. And then you go inside the boat, and for like 20 minutes, it's like a 17-minute sequence, it just is a relentless, like disgusting sex meltdown. Yeah. 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 Uh... <laughs> You know, I think one of my favorite things about this is um, like how powerful a commentary, and I don't, I don't know whether or not this was intended. I don't, but mm -hmm. you know how powerful a commentary it is to, you know, kind of, um, you know, ideas that we have about like liberal democracy and about like uh, uh, decorum in politics, you know, and and then about like. Um, for me, what I see is like the reality of all like the human condition, you know, politics and society is just that like it's all just like all life on earth is a competition for sunlight, right? Or the sun's energy. Yeah. It's like all politics and all civilization is a, you know, competition for power uh, in the same way. And it's like this showing it in like all its disgusting ugliness. Um, is like super powerful and uh, it's just like anytime i want i hear anyone talking about like you know the decorum or like you know the uh, principles or anything of a politician i want to be like no this is it's more like this it's more like this you know like uh <laughs> no <laughs> no one cares about you um uh, you know 
you know, this is something that I, I've told friends and loved ones. And I, it, this is not about any one politician or anybody, but, you know, I, all of it is like, you know, if they could be making something like green out of you and getting away with it and making money, they would, if that's the way mm-hmm. it worked. But, you know, like, and it's the same thing here. It's like, just because like power allowed him to do these things that like pushed him towards like ever more like disgusting displays of his power by, you know, like that's how he's going to raise money is by whoring out the senator's wives. And like the way he, the way he like was just like the juissance in that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, and the pageantry of it. It all kind of reminds me of um, the recent um, AOC forum where she had all of the senators like speak about their trauma. She was just like whoring themselves out for more power in like the same way that like the boat sequence unfolded here. Oh yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. Yeah, just like a point. Yeah, just huge, like just pornographic, you know, like you know, trauma like show of people who, you know, whether you were, you know, on the floor of the Senate, that one where it's like you know, people crying about something that didn't even happen to them, or like her on what you know, whatever social media platform she was on, talking for hours about you know her sexual history you know and it's all just complete fucking manipulation i mean it's you know like (laughs) you know my point is that it's like this there is that this is like the inverse but more honest show of that right um it's like uh you know the strength of strength versus the strength of weakness it's like Oh yeah, this is just her doing the same thing, but trying to use weakness to gain power instead of just the brute force application of power. Oh yeah, and I mean, the the movie, like you said, is just so expert at portraying it in all of its like most like horrifying like placid details, and I think a, a lot of like the wallpaper texture of the movie makes it so effective and, and convincing of that argument. But when it does like flash into those violent moments of sexuality and like grotesque horror um it is really memorable i mean there's when they uh, force the drunkard to drink all the wine and then cut his belly open to unleash all the wine there's the rape that malcolm mcdowell as caligula conducts on his uh this woman that he thinks is something he wants and then he uh rapes both her and the husband oh and- yeah he, he fists him yeah yeah, there's a fist like a fisting rape scene featuring whipped cream in this fucking movie. It's so good. Yeah, yeah, and then uh, yeah, he was like testing to see whether they were virgins or whether they were really virginal or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah it, it's <laughs> and then there's blood on the blood <laughs> on the whipped cream when he takes his hand out. Yeah. It's gorgeous, honestly, and it is really such a beautiful and object display of power. And I think that Malcolm McDowell really wins the day in his role here, and no one ever gave him his flowers for this. But he really does show this um, wavering sense of inflated ego and vulnerability throughout the movie where it just like rapidly switches between them. And one of my favorite moments is after... uh, 
he becomes deathly ill and is vomiting everywhere and is uh, only capable of being nursed by his incestual sister. And there's all of these fluids everywhere, the sweaty bed, and uh, the only person who can help him through it, this power-hungry politician, like the AOC of all history, the only person who can help her <laughs> is the incest sister. Yeah, yeah, it's... Uh... Yeah, they should have, um, I don't know, I feel like they should screen this at DSA meetings. Um, I, think they, I think they should. <laughs> it reminds me, like, when they're all voting and they're they're all supporting Caligula, it was like that horrible DSA, like, meltdown video that they just posted recently again with um, people getting upset about the gendered language and the, oh, it's all yeah. the same. Yeah, yeah. Please no chattering. That, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, totally. That's it. Yeah, please no chatter for the the sensory aware. But the tragic part of all of this is that at least the Romans like had like some sense of like male aestheticism here. Like there's nothing erotic about the way that our universe is falling apart right now. Oh, it's disgusting. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really a- disgusting. <laughs> yeah, there's there's no standards of class that beauty applied. Yeah. Yeah, no. All um, the pantsuits and the. I can't. It's just very aesthetically offensive to, <laughs> to me. Yeah. And, uh. Yeah, that's. I mean, this. I, I don't know if that's a result of, like, the dishonesty of, like, trying to dress power in quorum. You know? But it seems to go hand in hand. Like, you know, raw power comes with raw beauty. I mean, you know, this start to sound a little barbarian but hey you know, it fits. I mean it seemed to work out for them <laughs> <laughs> one way or another in any case uh, I don't have a solution it's not going to be me the one that's going to figure out I'll just uh, merely make pithy little comments from my side of the planet but um, I, I do think that this movie is one of the ultimate portrayals of objection I've ever seen and it it is very contemporary and topical and just watching these politicians in the same way the slam poets do just force up their borders and their barriers and creating this box of uh, bizarre fetishism and sexuality and violence and there's nothing to do but watch from your television scream and gasp in horror. (laughs) 